Uh, I am, I'm very excited because <laughs> I've never been excited before in my life. Okay. Uh, I'm very excited, but, I'm, but this is fun, okay? Don't, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, I promise. Nobody's going to, so don't, don't, don't play the game right, okay? I want an honest reaction to this image. Now, I don't know if I'm clicking, guys. Uh, that image. Okay, now, honest to goodness, okay, who in here, I want to see a show of hands that you're not going to be embarrassed, I promise. A show of hands, who's taken the worn path? How many people? Raise your hands. No, I'm not talking about money. No, it's not money. We're just talking the well-worn path. How many people are taking the well-worn path through the grass? How many people? Okay. Now, how many people are saying, why would you do that? There's a perfectly good path over here. Stay on the other path and go that way. Now, raise your hands if that's you. See that? Now, some people didn't raise their hands on either one. What the heck? Okay. All right. So, look, we understand that there is varying degrees of the, of the way in, in which people think to themselves, I'm going to follow the rules, right? And, you know, I'm not going to. We understand that there's this whole big diversion in personalities. But here's the deal. Scripture tells us something. And that is it says at some level, even in the ones who would only ever take that asphalted path, even amongst those people, there's something that if somebody came to you and told you, you have to do it this way, there would be something in you that would say, no, I don't. There's something in you that would say, and who are you to tell me that? Right? Right? Everybody's got this somewhere. So it comes, well, here. The law said you shall not covet. And he said, so I'm not having any trouble with coveting, but then sin sees an opportunity through the commandment, and it produced in me all sorts of covetousness. There is this thing in us that when we're told not to do something, we want to do it. Not not totally strong in everybody, but there is this thing. It's what we call the Adamic nature. That comes from Adam and Eve, the garden. And the idea is, is God has said, this is the way it is, and this is what I want you to do, and everything else. And they had this thought. I have a better way than God, so I'm going to go my way. It's not going to be God's way. Think about what Satan did with Eve. What he did was he said, you know, first of all, you're not going to die, but, you know, you're going to be like God. If, yeah, you're going, to be, you're going to be like God, okay? And the point is, is that, that that thing rose up in her and said, I want that. I, he's withholding something from me. He's not giving me everything. I've got to do this myself. Do you see that? There's all kinds of different ways in which this Adamic nature manifests itself. But the bottom line is, its commonality is, God has said, I have a beautiful way. And we say, I have a better way. That's what we do, right? And so, the sinful nature is always hostile to God. That Adamic nature, the flesh, it never did obey God's law, and it never will. Now, understand something. Most of the people in this room are Christians. You have been made new. You have a new nature. And that nature wants to walk on the path that God made. Whatever it is, 
before you had varying degrees of whether or not you were going to do this, but now there's this thing because your eyes are open when you're made new, you see God's way and you go, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. That's better. That's wonderful. I want to do that. So here's my question. Why don't we always do that then? Because <laughs> Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I do want to do? The new nature is saying, yes, I want to go that way. It's beautiful. It's better. I know that it's better. And still, there's this thing in me that makes me go another way. So what we understand is, is that in Christ, in my new nature, I am God's sanctification. Now, not yet. I am God's creation. I am his nature. I want to do what he's doing. And when I die and I'm rid of this body of flesh, that is all that will be in me wanting to do his, right? But until then, we have resonance inside of this other thing called flesh. And the flesh is giving us a pitch. Here's the way that Romans says it, God through Paul. He says, look, if you put your mind on the things of the spirit, the new nature, the things that I've, talked, I've showed you are better, then you'll have life. If, however, you put your mind on the things of the flesh, it'll kill you. But we know that we do both. Sometimes we choose this and sometimes we choose this. So here's my question for today. This is big, guys. What if we could never violate the rules and regs, the do's and don'ts? We know that life is not about that. I'm hoping that you are mature enough that when you make a mistake in the flesh, that you understand that who you really are in God, you understand his grace, you understand there's no condemnation, you understand all the things that you need to understand in your identity in Christ. I pray that you're old enough, mature enough, that you get it enough to do that and not be just racked with guilt or shame or all the other things. But that doesn't mean that there's not still this problem. It wouldn't be lovely to just never do that. Wouldn't it be lovely to always choose his way? Wouldn't that be great? You know, really, when we say never violate the rules and regs, the do's and don'ts, really, the better question would be something like this. What if you could never violate them, but also fulfill them? What if you could get to a place, because remember something about the rules and regs, the law. Remember something. Yes, it says don't do this or do do this, but that isn't the point at all, really, is it? I mean, this is the way that Jesus says, he says, there's so much more to every one of those things than if, if you just got it right. If you just didn't do this and you did do this, would you be right with God? No, yeah, sure, you wouldn't be doing something wrong, but would you be right with God? No, why? Because it wouldn't be about him. It'd be about the rule and the reg. See, what you wanna do is fulfill what the heart of that rule and reg is, what the spirit of that rule and reg is. That's what you really wanna do. This is the way Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount, where it's all about taking the law and saying, you think it's like this. Let me tell you how much worse than that it really is. You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. I say if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And if you call him an idiot, it's even worse. And if you curse him, it's like really bad. Wait a minute. <laughs> no show of hands on that. Is there anybody in here that has never been angry at anybody? And Jesus just made that like murder in terms of its consequence. 
Is there anybody that can say they haven't been angry at somebody? Has there anybody that hasn't called somebody else an idiot at some point? Some of us make it a sport. But you see, there's so much more to it. So what if there was a way to actually fulfill the heart of it, which is what we're going to get to? And do that all the time. Now, I'm not talking perfection here, okay? Never misunderstand. I'm not talking you'll never, ever make another mistake in your life. I'm just saying that they'll be just so infrequent that it won't even be a problem. And what if you could do this basically all the time without even really trying? Would you like that? If you'd like that, then pay attention. <laughs> Tim Coffin, you're, the, you're our prayer today. Love you so much. You are a man of God. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to be able to um, come here and just hear your word, just to be able to worship as a community and just speak through Kurt and uh, just give us a desire to be able to live this kind of life that Kurt is talking about. I know I can hear this and I can kind of feel inside myself a certain unbelief that is this possible and just give us a belief and a faith that we can live this kind of life. And uh, definitely lift up uh, the Bellevue community church, the Bellevue church community Amen. here, and just be able to spark um, just a new, a new faith here in this area, and just heal us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That was the perfect prayer. Okay, one of these incredibly good Bible project. We're in Deuteronomy. Hold it, hold it, stop, stop. Do we know what's wrong? Trip through the wilderness and the exodus. Okay, now hold on, hold on. Just I'm going back. I'm gonna start again. Are we good? Okay. The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible and the final book of the Torah. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel was at Mount Sinai for one year, entering into a covenant with their God. And then they had the disastrous road trip through the wilderness, and the exodus generation disqualified themselves from entering into the land promised to Abraham. And so Deuteronomy begins with Moses standing in front of this new generation, explaining the Torah. And it's from here that the design and purpose of the book unfolds. Deuteronomy is a series of speeches from Moses where he's calling the next generation of Israel to be faithful to the covenant with their God. At the center of the book is a collection of laws, which are the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. Some of the laws are new, but many are repeated from the laws given earlier at Mount Sinai. And that's actually where this book gets its name, from a Greek word, deuteronomion, which means a second law. Now, surrounding these laws are two outer sections of Moses' speech. Each of these are broken up into two parts themselves. Let's just dive in and we'll see how this whole thing works. So Moses, first of all, summarizes the story so far, and he highlights how rebellious the previous generation was in contrast with God's constant grace and provision in the wilderness. And God did bring his justice on them, yes, but he did not abandon his covenant promises. 
After this comes a series of very passionate sermons where Moses calls on this new generation to be more faithful than their parents were to the covenant. He reminds them of the Ten Commandments, and then the centerpiece of the section is a famous line called the Shema. Moses says, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. This became a very important daily prayer in Judaism, and it brings all of the themes of the book together. So the word listen, or shema in Hebrew, it means much more than just to to hear. Its meaning includes responding to what you hear, or in English we would say obey. And the word love in Hebrew also means much more than just an emotion or feeling. It's about a decision of wholehearted devotion to God that involves your will and your emotions, your mind and your heart. Now, for Israel, their obedience and devotion to God served a much larger purpose. Obedience to the laws is going to make Israel a unique people among the nations. Just like God said at Mount Sinai, they will become a kingdom of priests. And Moses now says, how? Israel has the chance, by following the laws, to show the whole world the wisdom and the justice of God. The other key idea in the Shema is that Israel was called to obey and be devoted to the Lord alone. Or literally, in Hebrew, it says, the Lord is one. Now, in context, the point is that the Lord is the one God Israel is to worship and obey. Israel is about to go into the land of Canaan, where people worship idol gods that represent all different aspects of creation. The sun, the weather, sex, and war. And in Moses' view, worshiping these gods degrades humans and destroys communities. But worshiping the God of Israel, who's the creator and the redeemer, that will lead to life and blessing. And so we come to the large collection of laws at the center of the book. And they're roughly arranged by topic. So the opening section is about Israel's worship of their God. They were to have one central temple where one God would be worshiped. And also God was to be worshiped in Israel's care for its poor. So, for example, all Israelites were to set aside one-tenth of their annual income to be given to the temple, but another tenth was to be set aside every three years and given to the poor. And these are the kinds of laws that put Israel on the cutting edge of justice in comparison to their ancient neighbors, and it was all bound up with their worship of God. The next section outlines the character qualities of Israel's leaders. So the elders, the priests, the kings, these were all placed under the authority of the covenant laws, which God said that he would enforce by sending prophets to keep the leaders accountable. So in contrast to Israel's neighbors, where kings were thought of as divine and a law unto themselves, Israel's leaders were subordinate to the law and the prophets. Following this is a large section of laws about Israel's civil life, so rules about marriage and family and business, and also about social justice, about their legal system and how it was to protect widows and orphans and immigrants. And then these are concluded by more laws about worship. Now, here's some tips for reading all of these laws. Remember, first of all, these are the terms of the Sinai Covenant given specifically to ancient Israel, living in a culture that's very different from yours. And so two, it's not going to be helpful to compare these laws with modern laws from a very different culture. Rather, these were given to set Israel apart. And so we need to compare these laws with those of Israel's neighbors, like in Assyria or Babylon. And when you do that, all of a sudden laws that seemed harsh or bizarre become much more clear. You see that God is pushing Israel to a higher level of justice than was ever known before. 
And so finally, try to discern what core principles of wisdom or justice underlie any particular law, and you'll discover some really profound things. So here's an extra credit assignment. Go see how Paul the Apostle does this very thing in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 9, and he quotes a law from Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 4. It's really interesting. So back to Moses. After he goes through all of the laws, he issues a final challenge that Israel should listen to and love their God. He first issues a warning and an ultimatum. If Israel listens to and obeys their God, everything's going to go great, lots of divine blessing. But if they don't listen and rebel, famine, plague, devastation, and ultimately exile from the land. And then Moses forces a decision. He says, today I set before you all life or death, blessing or curse, goodness or evil. So choose life by loving the Lord your God and listening to him. But then Moses says this. He says, I know that after I die, you're going to rebel and turn away from God and end up in exile, which is kind of a downer. But then again, he's been with these people for decades and it becomes clear that his hopes are not very high. But all is not lost, Moses says. One day, when Israel is sitting in exile, at any point, Moses says, they can turn back to their God, who will, in his words, circumcise your hearts so that you may love him with all your heart and soul and live. Now, this is a vivid metaphor that's saying something is fundamentally wrong with Israel's heart. It's stubborn and hard. And it's the same thing wrong with the heart of all of humanity. This is going all the way back to the rebellion in the garden. Humans seized autonomy from God. They wanted to define good and evil for themselves, and they ruined God's good world as a result. But one day, Moses says, God is going to do something to transform the hearts of his people so that they can truly listen to and love God from the heart and be led back to true life. And this is the promise that gets picked up by the later biblical prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the hope for a new heart. So Moses ends his speech with a poem of warning and then of blessing, and then he walks up onto a mountain and he dies. And so the Torah draws to a close. All of the major plot tensions of the biblical story are in place, but left totally unresolved. So when is the descendant of the woman going to come and defeat evil? Or how is God going to rescue the whole world and bless all nations through this family? And how can God's holiness be reconciled with people who are continually rebellious? And how is God going to transform the hearts of his people? You just have to keep reading to find out. But for now, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. we're doing without those videos. They're just, they just do so much heavy lifting in terms of the overall and everything else so that we can narrow down and go after the particular points that are most relevant to our understanding in the New Testament. So with that in mind, okay, I wanna, uh, just a second, I'm not spelling that, okay. Now look, we said God wants to show the whole world who he is by showing who he is with them, the Israelites, right? God is trying to reveal who he is by people being able to watch. And that has to do with the blessings, but it also has to do with when they step out and they don't do the right things, right? So he's trying to show who he is in his holiness and his greatness and his love, all of it, right? But do understand something. There's another thing. Now that happens whether the people obey or not, to a degree. Because there's another whole side of this that God is trying to reveal that doesn't actually get manifested very well by the Israelites. And that is, he also wants to show how incredible life could be for those living with him. 
The Israelites were mostly not living with him, and so we learned about his holiness really well, what, what he likes and doesn't like and who he is that way. But what they didn't do so well was show the incredible blessings. Now, it did happen every once in a while, right? I mean, there were times when they were incredibly blessed, more than all the nations around them, okay? But what he's trying to do is show us who he is and how incredible life can be. Israel was supposed to make others desire to be like them because they were so blessed. And so, and also because of that, that people would want to be with God. Do you see that? That was God's plan. So now you have to ask, how did they do? And we've already been kind of saying it. The truth is it was a little more this than other, right? You, know, you might not be able to read it, but it says, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Right? And that is a lot what we get out of the Israelites, isn't it? But lest we go pointing our fingers too quickly, hang in there. Here's what I want to do. God tried to reveal himself and the incredible life that could be had with him through the Israelites, and it didn't really happen. Not, not to the fullness God wanted. So he tried again, and he did that with Jesus, a man that was truly 100% man, and who lived life in a way that revealed who God is, but also what life could be like. Sound, sound, sound. I'm gonna start over again, sound. Now, I've paused it right there because I want you to look at that. See, what God wanted to do with our relationship with us is show people who he was and how life could be. And that's what's happening right there. In another way, understand, what he's saying is, if you want to see God, look at Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus says, right? Anyone who has looked at me has seen the Father. And you've also seen a life, what it's like when it's fully oriented to God. God wants to reveal himself in the incredible life he wants for everyone by having other ones look at, this is number three now, right? Tried with the Israelites, succeeded with Jesus, and now he's trying again with Christians. You see it? So how are we doing? <laughs> are we, I'm not gonna put it up again, but are we like the ship? <laughs> Is our life revealing what Jesus has did? 
Is it? Because that's what it's going to take for people to know really who God is in fullness and the amazing life that we could have. So let me put it this way. What if the broken, terrible, anything but God state of our culture is due largely to us not revealing how wonderful he is and how amazing life can be with him? You know what I'm saying? As Christians, it's easy to sit there and say, oh my gosh, how terrible all of this, that, and the other thing is. But what if that's on us to some significant degree? If we were all living the life that Christ lived, do you think that our culture would look like it does now? Because I can guarantee it would not. And that's what he's asked us to be. Greater works than these will you do. Be like me, right? People look at you and they see God and they see what life can be and they are attracted to that. That's his plan. What if the lives we live are so close to the lives everyone else lives that there simply isn't any compelling reasons for those we love to choose him? Is that possible? No condemnation here. Just owning it. Just getting it. Just letting it sink in. Okay, what if? In fact, let's go another one. And what if that's simply because we're not really living in him? What if that's because we got one foot in and one foot not so much in? And then our lives look like what? What every other life in the world looks like. Being tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves. Not being on the rock and the rock alone, we get swept away by all kinds of things. And then the world looks and says, well, you know, there might be something different, but is it compelling? So it turns out we're actually quite a bit like the Israelites. I do want to say, I do believe because we've been made, made new creatures, I do believe because of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, I do believe that we actually live a life that is significantly different than the Israelites. But I want to do it like this. I want to say if the Israelites are over here, and if what God wants is over here, we're like over here. See it? I think we're inside. We're closer too. But as to how far, right? Again, this is not condemnation. I'm going after what God's trying to tell us today. Basically, how do you live the life that we're laying out? To live the life that, you, that God wanted well, here it is, right here. Look, today I'm giving you the choice between a blessing and a curse. You will be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. But this is Deuteronomy 11. Remember in chapter 12 through 26 is the retelling of the law. And by the way, it's the summary. It's, it's, it's like shrinking it down. All of those chapters and all those books, it's saying, here's the summary, here's the big points to the new generation right before they're going into the land to live it. And so he's saying, I set before you, you'll be blessed if you obey the commandments of the Lord I'm giving you today, but you'll be cursed if you reject the commandments of the Lord your God and turn away from him and worship God you have not known before. Now, I want you to see how sincerely they said yes, because the next book is Joshua, and Joshua well, when they're in the land, they've already taken some cities. They're starting to settle the land. Joshua is sort of summing up what's been going on. And he comes back to him and he does this again. See, now you're in the land, make your choice. 
And so he says, choose today whom you will serve. The people replied, now listen, because I want you to not hear Jewish people speaking this. I want you to hear you as a Christian speaking this. I would never abandon the Lord. Insert your own reasons here. Their reasons were the Lord our God is the one who rescued us from our ancestors from slave in the land of Egypt. What has he done for you? He performed mighty miracles before our eyes. What has he done for us? As we traveled through the wilderness among the enemies, he preserved us. What has he done in your life? So we too will serve the Lord for he alone is our God. See, that's a great reason, right? I'm gonna suggest to you that it's not the greatest reason. It's, but it's a pretty good one. But now they go on. <laughs> Joshua, God bless him. Joshua comes back and says, you're not gonna do it. <laughs> then Joshua warned the people. They said, yes, we will. And so he warns the people. He says, look, if you abandon the Lord and serve other gods, he'll turn against you and destroy you. Don't say yes. Count the cast of the tower. Don't just be flippant here. Okay? He'll turn against you and destroy you even though he's been so very good to you. But the people answered Joshua, no, 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 don't need that. We will serve the Lord. Good answer. You are a witness to your own decision, Joshua says. When, what he's really saying is when things go bad, you'll know why. Okay? You have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, they replied, we are witnesses to what we have said. All right, then Joshua said, turn your hearts to the Lord God of Israel. And the, and the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. How many, don't show hands, but how many people have said that a million times to the Lord? Over and over and over and over. Usually right after we failed. Right? I'm gonna serve you and you alone. I'm gonna get it right this time. What I'm going after is, is try and get it right. There's a better way to get it right. That's the hope that's in this sermon. This is what's in Deuteronomy. Now watch this. Okay, they chose so sincerely and turned so quickly. <laughs> Does that remind you of anybody? Was the problem that they didn't really understand what was being said in the law? What was really going on? Is that the problem? They thought what I need to do is to try and follow, obey the rules and regs, the do's and don'ts. As Christians, we don't say it that way, but there is that aspect in our life. But nonetheless, we do it in spirit. We say, I just have to quit doing the bad things, and I just have to do more of the good things, and then it's going to be more what it's supposed to be. If I can just do this. And so we all miss the real point. We got our eyes focused on the wrong thing. Watch this. We're going into laws now. But we're going to start, before we get to chapter 12, we're going to start with Shema. Now, Kevin's going to be doing this next week. You do not want to miss this. The Shema is... If you take the whole five books, the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch or the Torah, and the first five books lay out the whole of what the whole of Scripture is all about. It's an unbelievable thing that God has done in this book called the Bible. He laid out all the tensions, as they said in the video, all the tensions, all the themes, everything is laid out right there in those first five. Who God is, what our problem is, what's going on, how we respond, all of these things laid out there. This is the thing. Listen, Israel. 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I want to be careful here. That means a lot of things. That is such an immense statement. It's almost unplumbable, the depths of what that really means. But in this context, the easiest way to think about it for today is this. All the other nations had a plethora of gods, right? A God for this, a God for that, a God for this, a God for that, a God for this, a God for that. You make your idol, you do your thing, you, you, know, you do whatever. They had all kinds of gods. And what he's saying is, that is nonsense. There's only one God, and I'm it. The Lord isn't a whole bunch of other gods, it's me. And what are you supposed to do? This is the whole point. We're in Deuteronomy, we're getting towards the, 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 the final things of Deuteronomy and the whole of the Pentateuch, and God is laying everything out right here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's it. That's it. We're gonna figure out what that really means by looking at something. We're gonna go into the law now, you know, 12 through 26. And I'm gonna cherry pick some verses because they're really easy to get the point across. Because we're gonna look at what the command is, but then we're gonna look at what's behind it. And it's real easy with these ones, but I'm telling you, I could take you through every single law. You can do it yourself. You can go through every single law with that in mind. And you're gonna find how every single law is actually an expression of this. Now watch. Here's chapter 15. If there's any poor Israelites in your towns, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Now, this is a little complicated right here, and I, I was going to take it out because I just didn't want to get bogged down into detail. So you need to just let me do a quick little aside because it'll make it even deeper for you. You have to understand, see, don't be mean-spirited and refuse someone alone because the year for canceling debts closes in. What's the year of canceling debts? What's that mean? Well, there's two layers of it. The first one, it's not in this verse right here, but the first one is this. What you have to understand about God is that he resets things all the time. He lets people become fantastically wealthy. He has no problem with wealth. And some people make bad mistakes or, make, or try something and mess up or whatever and have to end up selling their land, the land that God gave them when they entered the land. But every 50 years, what God did was he said, every generation, I'm gonna reset it. So if you've sold your land, it's only for however many years are left until the year of Jubilee when all of it's turned back. That's the first layer. The second layer is he even puts in a thing and he says, and every seven years, if somebody owes you money, it's done. No matter how much they owe you. Now, is it that he's saying every seven years you don't owe anything at all? Or is it that he's saying, and this is controversial and nobody knows the answer, or is he saying, because every seven years they were to let the land lie fallow, they were not to plant every seven years, they were to let the land rest because that regenerates the land? See, when you over-farm land, you strip it of its chemicals. That's why we have to drive big, big tractors over and spray and do all the things we have to do because we have to replenish the ground so it'll grow our crop. But it's the reason why crops don't have taste anymore because we're just getting the, the material in that it takes in order to make it look right but it doesn't have the richness in it to where it tastes right. If you tasted what a tomato is supposed to taste like, you would love them. Strawberries, all this stuff, we're, we're growing it basically hydroponically. We're just getting it to look like a strawberry, but it doesn't taste like a strawberry. It doesn't have richness in it. So God's saying, let the land rest, and then it'll be more profitable over the long haul. 
okay? So it may be that this debt thing is, has to do with, well, if you're not planting, how could you pay your debt? Because you don't have any crops that year. So it may just be a, a pause of one year before you have to pay it. But either way, here's what he's saying. Look, don't refuse somebody a loan because of the canceling debt. Like it's the sixth year and now you're lending somebody money and gosh, they're not gonna be able to pay me until the eighth year or I might have to give, forgive the whole thing. Don't be that way. See, if you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you're guilty because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly. If you do that, I'll take care of you. Do what I want you to do and I'll take care of the rest. Be right with me and I'll, I'll take care of everything for you. See it? Yeah. Now, but here's what we're asking. This is the question on all these laws. What is, the, what is God trying to communicate? The heart and the spirit behind the rule and the reg. What's he trying to communicate here? Just take a guess. Love. In particular, what kind of love? Yes, of course. But watch this. Isn't he communicating you must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself? Isn't he saying treat people like you want to be treated? <laughs> Isn't he? How would you want to be treated? I'm in need. It's the sixth year. What, I can't help that. I still have a need. Give to me. God will take care of you. Everything will work. Because we did what God wanted, which was to love our neighbor like we'd want to be treated. See it? As ourselves. Okay, here's another law. Now, this has to do with the feasts. And remember, this is a summary. So in the larger law that we have the first time around, we have seven feasts. But these feasts are, like the first three in particular, can be put under one umbrella. But even then, God has truncated the number of feasts in this retelling to three. And what are they? Now watch this. See, this is the summary that God's telling. Now there's no Jesus in the world at this point in time. Nobody knows the symbology, the typology, the things that are coming out here. But the first one that he says is, is you must do Passover, which is about what? Jesus, the Passover lamb, the one who forgives the sin, right? The one who paid for your sin. Better. The second one is weeks, Pentecost, which is about what? The Holy Spirit, empowering you. And the third one is about booth, which is about what? Dwelling in God. Now, all of them point to God like this, but look at that. These are the ones that God says, these are the three biggies. And now watch, what we're trying to do is, is the two basic requirements, what's the spirit behind it? The two basic, everyone must meet together. They all gotta come together. And everyone must bring something to the Lord. What do you think he's trying to communicate there? Everybody needs to come together and everybody needs to bring somebody to the Lord. What would you say? What's the point of this? What's the principle behind this? You should have a good hint from the last one that we did this with. What would that, how, would you, how would you say this? Exactly. Love God and one another. <laughs> right? Okay, let's do another one. Remember, the Levitical priests, the whole family of the tribe of Levi, they'll receive no allotment of the land amongst the other tribes in Israel. Instead, the priests and the Levites will eat from the special gifts given to the Lord by who? The other tribes. That's their share. 
They'll have no land of their own amongst the Israelites. What's he doing here? The Lord himself is their special possession, just as he promised them. But again, now, what we're doing is, is what's he trying to communicate? What's the heart and the spirit? Now, just we're going to walk through this a little bit. Note, the ones ministering the Lord are given no land to provide for themselves, which means that they're utterly dependent upon the rest of the people. So what's the point? If others love God, they provide for the Lord's ministers and his ministries, the stuff the Lord wants to do amongst us, in us, through us. If they don't, his ministries his ministers and his ministries shrivel up and die. Now, again, what's the principle? What's the thing behind this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. But look what he's just done here. He's made that love of him tangible. The love of him will cause you to pour into his ministers and his ministries. You see it? But really, what's it about? Love him with everything you got. With everything you got. Not just money, you. Become part of it. Be the thing that reaches the world. The Great Commission. See it? Okay, we're, 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 we're wrapping this up now, but I'm gonna do a three, three banger here, okay? Now watch this. And here's what you have to understand about these three. There is nothing like this in any other law anywhere. The other laws are talking about how people can get along together and how civilization can go forward and so on. And they do have some kindness to the poor and so on. But there is nothing like this found in any other code of law because we're working with three people groups that in other codes of law have no rights. Watch this. Suppose you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God hands them over to you and you take some of them as captives. And suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman. Now, he's not saying that this is a good thing to do. He's just saying this happens in life. So you see a beautiful woman, and you're attracted to her, and you want to marry her. If that happens, you may take her to your home. But, now watch this. She's a human being. She's not a slave. She's a human being. Let her mourn. She'll stay in your home, but let her mourn for her father and her mother for a full month. That's not even long enough, but you get the point. You're lusting after her. Don't just go take her from where she was and put her into another thing, okay? Give her time. Treat her well. Then you may marry her and you'll be her husband and she'll be your wife and hopefully it all works out great. But let's just be clear about the ways of men. Oftentimes they want something very badly and when they get it, they decide they didn't want it after all. And so not saying that that's a good thing, God says, what happens if that happens? And so he says, if you marry her and she does not please you, he's not saying that's a good thing. He said that you're not supposed to divorce her. But he's saying if she does and you're trying to get rid of her, you must let her go free. You may not sell her or treat her as a slave. You have humiliated her. <laughs> I'm telling you, read it. Rights of women and all the other laws and all the other nations and all the world at that point in time do not exist. Let's be clear. Rights of women in almost every nation in the world today virtually do not exist. In the Western world, yes. In most of the rest of the world, no. Okay, that's number one. Number two, 
If slaves should escape from their masters and take refuge with you, you must not hand them over to their masters. Let them live among you in any town they choose. Do not oppress them. They are human beings. They are children created in my image. They have value. I care for them. You must also. You see it? Slaves had no rights. Even to today, slavery, there are more slaves in the world today than there were at any time in all of human history. Right now. If you lend anything to your neighbor, do not enter his house to pick up the item he's giving as security. This is poor people. You must wait outside. See, even today in, in the world, much of the world, poor people are there because of their own problems and they need to be there. You must wait outside while he goes in and brings it out to you. You can't be snidely whiplash. Show up at the door with your little piece of paper, brush them aside, have the children cowering in the corner as you go over and take stuff out of their house to satisfy your debt. You see it? They're a human being. Just because you, they owe you money doesn't make them less of a person that I love. So don't treat them that way. In fact, it goes on. If your neighbor is poor and gives you his cloak as a security for a loan, don't keep the cloak overnight. Return the cloak to its owner by sunset so that he can stay warm. Notice it doesn't say, and he pays you back. It's saying whether he's paid you back or not, return the cloak to its owner by sunset so he can stay warm through the night and bless you. And the Lord your God will count you as righteous. And here's what he's saying. I'll take care of you if you'll take care of him. <laughs> right? <laughs> so in all these things, what's the spirit? What's the heart? We're saying it over and over again. You must love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. You are as precious to him, they are as precious to him as are you. But watch this now. Teacher, teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right there in Deuteronomy, here comes back. But then he does, and the first, this is the first and greatest commandment, a second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself, and then what does he say? The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And I just showed you that through the law. Now you thought the law was about rules and regs, do's and don'ts, we all do because that's how we experience and live them. But you see what he's just done? He said, get the point. God is love. And everything that he gives, every law, every command, every instruction, every help, everything is coming from him being love. So if what you're doing isn't love, it isn't God. <laughs> right? All the other nations created laws so the people could live together in some degree of peace and justice. They could have civilization. That's what laws are for, so we can be civilized and, and live in some sort of peace and security amongst our neighbors and some sort of community. But God's law is not actually about what to do or what not to do, nor any kind of rules and regs, do's and don'ts. It's not even really about, now listen to this, what it takes to get along with him or others. See, I gotta do the right thing and I gotta quit doing the wrong thing because it's separating me from God. That's a lie from the pit of hell. 
The things that you do wrong and the things that you do right are not separating you from him. He's covered them in his blood. So then what are all those rules and regs and all this stuff about? What? No, no. What is life about? Loving him and others. Real simple. Now watch this. Okay? We're bringing it home here. Languages of love. How many people know what languages of love are? Just raise your hands. Okay. Now, real simple. Touch, tell, time, gift, service. And what it's saying is, is that all of us operate with one of these at the top and one of these at the bottom and everything else in between in some sort of ranking. So for example, if you know me, which are my two, the two top ones, which are they? Touch and tell, right? Have you ever seen me but I don't give you a hug? That's because I love you. I'm expressing the love that I have for you. I want to hug you. I want to give you a hug, right? And what am I almost always going to do at some point during the conversation? I'm gonna somehow with words express to you how much you mean to me, which is to say, I love you. Now this can drive people crazy, <laughs> right? That don't have that love language. It's like you're invading my personal space. I'm like, I'm finding myself all the time meeting people and hugging for the first time. And then I realize I've never met this person that was probably too forward. So I've got to dial it back and I've gotta say, I'm sorry, I'm just a hugger. You know what I mean? And they usually go, I understand that people do it to me all the time, you know? Right? So now watch. See, I'm touch and tell. Now, Julie, what's she? Service, 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 service. I'm not sure if she has any of the other ones. No, that's not true. But she's service all the way. So here's the point about love languages. Here's the point. If I come to Julie and I give her a hug and tell her I love her, I've expressed my love for her, haven't I? But she's not receiving it. Because it's not her love language. In fact, the kids and I have told you before, the kids and I do this thing with Julie when we want to really bug her. And that is we come up to her and we just put our arms around her and we just hold her and then we just keep holding her. <laughs> and she'll start getting... <laughs> it's so funny. Okay? <laughs> do that to her today. You do that. Everybody. Okay, no. Okay. But the point is, see, it's not her love language. So if I want to tell Julie that I love her, what do I have to do? Yeah, I have to clean the house. I have to do the dishes. I have to do something on her car. I have to do something that is an act of service for her. And then she goes, oh, he loves me. Now, what does she have to do with me, though? And she literally works at this. It's so funny. It's so transparent. I don't care. It still says I love you. The fact that she's trying, despite the fact it's hard for her to do it, but she'll touch me. I'm not talking. I'm just saying... <laughs> Okay, she'll hug me or she'll hold my hand. Literally, we're, we're watching TV or doing something and she'll put her hand over there, not because she wants to, but because she knows I'll go, uh, even if you made that up and you had to do that, I don't like it, <laughs> right? So there you go. Now, here's what I'm going after, premarital. In premarital, what always happens is these two people are in love, so they're doing all this. Hopefully they're not touching each other too much. They're definitely telling each other how much. They're spending all their time together. The friends are going, where did you go? Right? And they're giving, you know, oh, I saw this and I'm getting, I got it for you. And hey, I did this thing for you. You're firing on all five cylinders all the time when you're just in love, first love, right? I mean, you're doing all of these languages, right? So no matter what their language is, what are they hearing? 
love, 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 and they're doing the same thing back, and you're hearing love, 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 love. You guys are in love. You see it? First love. Is, does first love last? Has anybody that's been married more than five years have the same kind of love that you had at first? So what I do in the premarital is I tell people, here's what you gotta do. I want you to think about your, your people of the same gender that you love, what do you do with them? So that when, you, when you're no longer in first love and you're not firing on all five cylinders, what cylinders are you going to be firing on naturally? See? Now that's your love language and if they happen to match, which a lot of couples do, I'm like, you are so lucky. If they don't match, I'm like, you're really gonna wanna work at this, <laughs> right? Okay, so that's what I do. Now, here's, what do I tell that story? What is God wanting us to do with him? All of it, speak it all, tell it all, do it all, fire on all five cylinders. See that? He's saying, be in love with me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But here's the problem. We know that there's gonna come a time when we're gonna fall out of first love. And then what do you do? First love doesn't last. So how do we get to a love, and I phrase this very carefully, that's all about him. Now watch this. Here's what God says to the Israelites when they're entering the land, before they enter it, Deuteronomy, they enter in Joshua. In Deuteronomy, here's what he says. The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. Remember, at this point in time, they are vagabonds roaming around the desert, being fed every day, and the shoe's not wearing out, but they're still, they don't have a home, and they don't have prosperity. So when you get to prosperity, the houses will be richly stoked with goods you did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns you did not dig. You will eat from vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you have eaten your fill in this land, read it with me, be careful not to forget the Lord. <laughs> and Moses and Joshua both tell them you're going to. As much as you said it with all your heart that you would never forget that, when you get comfortable, I say this all the time, nothing is harder to survive than prosperity. We think persecution turns us off from the Lord. You want to know where Christianity is exploding more than any other place in all the world? Go to the most persecuted places. Iran probably has the fastest growing church in the world right now. And you can get killed you want to know another place? China. Blowing up churches, arresting pastors right and left, doing everything they can, and they're, they're one of the fastest growing churches in all the world. Persecution doesn't turn us off from God. It turns off, it, make, it works. <laughs> what makes us lose God is we just get comfortable. <laughs> Isn't that what God said when he's talking about the seeds, remember? He says there's a seed that goes out there and some of it's gonna, some of it because of persecution, a person could lose the Lord, but look what he says. 
Jesus says, the seed that fell among the thorns, I think this is America right now, this is every Christian in America right now, even if you're not terribly well off. The seed that fell amongst the thorn represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure, the comforts of wealth, so no fruit is produced. You want to be better off, and so here's what you do. I have God in my life, but I want. In my spirit, there's this better way that God has, this path that is beautiful, but my flesh wants. <laughs> you see it? That, by the way, is why the prosperity gospel takes heart around the world because it plays to the flesh. It's saying you can have them both. <laughs> you can have them both as long as there's only one that you care about. As long as there's only one that is anything that means anything to you. I'll tell you what's really hard. Be rich and have to give away a lot of money. <laughs> what's going on is, is that the wonderful blessings that God brought on us are allowing us to get all tangled up and wrapped around the axle about a whole lot of other stuff in life to where God becomes really, help me get this. Think about the prayers that you pray for help. Most of the time, it's something that you want here. So the way back to the love that God wants you to have is to strip away everything else. Not a first love, a better love. Most of you have heard this. I'm gonna do this in two seconds. The first love is awesome, right? You find somebody, they are attractive to your eye, they make you feel good, you fire on all five cylinders, you fall in love, and then you become one in the sense that you don't know where one stops and the other begins and you are just solidly love. And then the honeymoon is over, and you realize that as much as you thought, there's really two people in here in this relationship. And so you work really hard at yourself to try and get rid of the stuff that is not working for your relationship. You try to correct yourself, and you also probably try and correct the other person, <laughs> making them into your image of what you think you need. See it? And after a while of that futility, you can't change yourself, and it turns out they didn't want to be changed like you thought they should be changed. <laughs> so now you go into phase three, which is, I'm going to find something else. Now, that can be an affair, but most of the time it's a hobby or just something you become consumed with, something that becomes your thing. You go after something else to fill the oneness you're supposed to be having with your mate. And then you get to phase four when you've finally given up realizing that all that stuff is worldly and it's not gonna get you anywhere either. And all of a sudden, one day, you just have this moment 
they're not who you want them to be. You, you don't know how happy you are, or unhappy you are, or anything else. But when you finally get stripped down, when you finally get to the end of it, when you finally quit loving God for all the stuff that he's doing for you, when you finally stop thinking of your marriage in the terms of what it can do for you, when you finally get past yourself, you start actually looking at the other person and who they really are. Not who you thought they were, but who they actually are. And when you do that, you're going to find out that God has given you somebody who is so not you, and that is so good, because <laughs> you really needed somebody who wasn't like you. <laughs> you really needed somebody who had those gifts. Julie and I just got done with the memorial for my mom. My dad pulled me aside after it was all over. And he said, I've never seen a team like you two. He said, you are so gifted. Sorry, I just have to say it the way he said it because I'm not patting myself on the back. He said, you are so gifted. That service was unbelievable. You are so gifted in those things. And gifted is the right word. It's not me. It's God, right? But you really let the Lord move, and he does. And, and that's so much what you do. And then she does something that is utterly, completely different than you. And it's every bit as good. She takes hundreds of people and makes them all feel valuable as she gives them things to do and puts together. Literally, you know, Julie's title at the church is party pastor. But that's not about the parties. It's about everybody getting together and raising up people and doing these things and everybody gets involved and everybody has value and everybody and, and this whole thing and it comes off and everybody has a wonderful time. A good time was had by one and all. And that's what she does. And I have to tell you, it was pretty cool to have my dad say, you guys make such a good team. But do you understand in myself, there's things I want. So I've had to learn to do something. I've had to learn that what God gave me was better than anything I ever wanted. And to come to a full appreciation of who she is. And when I do that, I fall in love with her. Not the kind of love that has to do with her being like me. The kind of love that has everything to do with her not being like me at all. <laughs> and being so Thankful that God has brought that. This is why marriage is a type for a relationship with God, right? Because he is utterly different than you, as much as you think he's like you. <laughs> you got it? So what are we doing here? What's God been teaching us the last few months, starting with Joe's sermon, which I keep saying that set us off into a whole journey? What's God trying to do these last few months? What have we been saying over and over, not just this sermon? Number one, he taught us, you gotta get rid of the stuff that you love about me because of the stuff that I do because it's encumbering your understanding of who I actually am. You love me because I did something for you. You gotta love me just because it's me. Because what if I don't do that for you? Will you still love me? And when you finally get that stripped away, you find out that, oh my gosh, it's not like, it's not like I love him less when I take away what he did for me. I find out, and I should look at you at this point in time, but it's just weird, but I find out how beautiful he is. Even when he's not doing what I want him to do. 
oh my God, if, if I take away my love because of what you do for me, I find, oh, oh, I had no idea. This had to do with what I wanted. This has to do with who you are. Oh. When we live like that, you're not worrying about rules and regs and do's and don'ts. <laughs> but you're fulfilling them. You're not doing the wrong stuff and doing, and doing the, you're not, however I meant to say, you know what I meant, right? You're not, you're not doing the stuff you shouldn't be doing and uh, I'm not getting it right. Here's what I'm trying to say. When you are in love with God in this deeper way of who he really is, you're oriented to only him, serving him. Everything else is gone. He is there and he is unbelievably lovable. He is unbelievably attractional, infinitely more than your box definition of what he could do for you. You're suddenly in this place where you're going, I, I didn't know anything. And I want all of that. You're not thinking about what to do and what not to do anymore. <laughs> that doesn't even matter. You're just loving, firing on all five cylinders. And you end up not doing the stuff and you end up fulfilling what the stuff was trying to get you to, which was him, <laughs> loving him. When we do this, you're supposed to be the salt of the life. What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? A Christian that is just so bounded up by the rules and the regs and the do's and the don'ts and, they're all, and that's what their life is about. What's that? Is anybody gonna be attracted to that? My God, I want to stay away from you. <laughs> right? So you've lost your salt. It gets thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're supposed to be the light of the world, to sit on a laptop that cannot be hidden. You don't put a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everybody in the house in the same way. Let your good deeds, wait a minute, that's works. No, it's not. It's what you are. It's what you do because you love him. If you let your good deeds shine in a way that everybody praises God, not you. <laughs> You're in love with him, so you just do right by people that need help. You do right by everybody. You love him and you love them. <laughs> and when you do that, then you become what the first church did. No one dared join them, even though they all had high regard. They respected the Christians, but they were afraid to join them. <laughs> Why? That person's doing things in a selfless way for other people in a way that I don't really want. I'm not willing to give that much. I'm not willing to do that much. The person that's doing it, what are they thinking? This is so much fun. <laughs> this is so awesome. This is so incredible. This is so much better than my definition of what I wanted, which fed, my, which fed me. But now that I'm letting him feed the world through me, I'm in love with him more and more because of all the things that he's doing. 
and I just can't wait to do more. But it's not about doing anything, is it? It's just what love looks like. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in love with one another to the point that they're one, and out of that comes everything else. So too with us. When we fall in love with him, we become one with him, and it just explodes in a whole bunch of other stuff. Who cares what it is? So today I'm giving you a choice between a blessing and a curse. <laughs> Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, we come and we make a choice right now. We have heard a vision of what it is that you want and what we're very conscious of is that it is true and that we still won't choose it. <laughs> so we come to you on a bended knee with a petition in our hearts to say, we want to be this incredible thing. It's not that we want a good life it's that we want to be in love with you so deeply that it all just plays out beautifully. We want to be your part in that orchestra that makes the sound that all the world hears as beauty. In Jesus' holy and precious name, God, make us that. Take the cup.